Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. You ever look for the right thing in the wrong place? Sometimes my wife sends me to the supermarket, and guys, you know what this is, right? Like the, the wife sends you to the supermarket to find something like yeast, and you're going, I have no idea where yeast would be. I don't even know what yeast is, let alone where it would be in the supermarket. And so two hours later, they'd find me curled in the fetal position in the supermarket somewhere saying, I just want to go home. Like we, we all have experienced that, right? We've experienced this kind of, we, we've misplaced something. We, we, we're on our cell phone going, where's my phone? You ever do that one? Or your glasses are on the top of your head saying, where are my glasses? Sometimes we, we are prone to look for the right things in the wrong places. It's a human predicament, isn't it? And on a spiritual level, we recognize that sometimes in our sinful inclinations, we are tempted to look for the right things in the wrong places. And our passage this morning wants to direct us to say, we need to find the right things in the right places. Namely, we're going to talk about blessing, God's blessing that he gives to us in Christ. And we need to look for those blessings in the right places. And when we look for them in the wrong places, we are apt to find suffering and difficulty. See, our passage this morning hangs on a certain structure from uh, what Peter has written to us. And if you haven't had the joy or uh, the time together with us in First Peter, I'd invite you to kind of go back and listen to some of our messages. I, I feel like God has really been uh, showing us, showing me a lot from the text uh, in these last few weeks. So I just encourage you uh, to join with us in that. But this passage this morning, it's like building a bridge, right? You build these big pylons, and then you kind of build onto the next pylon. Well, this section this morning goes all the way back and is really rooted or based upon or founded in what we saw weeks ago in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And Peter told us that we were what? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a a people for his own possession in chapter 2, verse 9. And he contradicted that in chapter 2, verse 8, where he described those people who were destined to stumble over Jesus Christ. And from there, in, in verses 11 and 12, he kind of unpacked this idea of like, this is how then you engage unbelieving people. You need to show them your good works so that someday they might glorify God who's in heaven. They might become converted and believe on Jesus Christ. And from there, we saw these three different subjections that were to happen, right? Because uh, some don't stumble on Christ, they accept Christ, they bank on Christ, and others do stumble upon Christ, we have this responsibility to be subject, subject to the governing authorities in chapter 2, verse 13, subject to masters, and, and finally, wives being subject to their husbands and the responsibilities of husbands to their wives. See, our passage today centers around verse 22, and, and Dan's going to bring it up for us this morning, and it kind of brings this whole thought to completion. See, while we're called to be subject, Peter wants to draw our attention this morning to how Christ has subjected all things. Look at what he says. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. See, there's our word, right? Just as we're to be subject 
to authorities, to masters, to husbands, or whatever else God has placed in our life, we recognize that first, Jesus has subjected everything to himself. Why are we to be subject? Because Jesus has subjected all angels and authorities. Thus, if we say, I want to believe that Jesus is Lord, but I don't want to be subject, something's wrong, right? You say, I believe Jesus is Lord, but I'm not going to submit to governing authorities. Or you say, I believe Jesus is Lord, but don't ask me to be, speak kindly about my boss. Or you say, I believe that Jesus is Lord, but I'm not submitting to that man that I call husband. There's something off, something wrong. See, here's our big idea for our text this morning. Jesus has subjected all things to himself, so we should be too. Pretty simple idea, right? Simple to understand, hard to live out. Since Jesus Christ has subjected everything to himself through his resurrection, you and I have the responsibility to put down our desires, to put down our flesh, so that we might live to Christ. We're going to see this in kind of three different movements. In verses 8 through 12, we're going to see that we bless others to receive blessing. In verses 13 through 17, we're going to bless others to bring shame. And I'll explain all this. In verses 18 through 22, Jesus suffered to overcome suffering. Let's start with the first section in verses 8 through 12. We bless others to receive blessing. Look at verse 8 of First Peter chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, we start off, and, and we're to kind of not only avoid what's wrong in verse 8, but we're to uh, put on characters that are good. So we avoid reviling in verse 9, but we put on characteristics that are good. In verse 8, Peter lists these characteristics, right? Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. And this should describe the Christian community that we live in. In fact, the terms themselves insinuate that these attitudes are displayed in the church, right? We have unity of mind that can only be stated about the church. We have brotherly love that should be stated about the church. You ever uh, participate in a church that just kind of cannibalizes itself, that feeds off of just hate and, and division, Everything is a struggle, and a church that was meant to be life-giving to itself and to its community actually sucks the life and the vitality out of its own people. I'm excited when we were supposed to um, uh, start in the book of Philippians here in a couple months, and in that book, uh, Paul holds out the antidote to factions that is joy in Christ, 
The way we deal with grumbling and division and, and uh, separation in the body of Christ is joy. And we'll kind of unpack that when we get there. But what Peter's saying here is that these attitudes grease the wheels of our fellowship together. It's simply easier to do life with those who are humble and loving and tender-hearted, isn't it? And what he goes on in verse 9, he kind of gives a, a little bit further picture. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And remember, back in chapter 2, verse 20, he was describing Christ, who's our hoopagramon. He's our, our, our tutor, our example, who shows us the way of suffering. And he described that he was not one who reviled when he reviled. He didn't reti- return reviling with reviling. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And again, the quality stated in verse 8 play themselves out in verse 9. We prove our humble mind or our tender heart by not returning the wrongs that are done against us, specifically in the body of Christ. You ever think about that? Right here, if you're a member or a participant of gospel community, I'm just going to tell you, people are going to let you down. I am going to let you down. Other people here are going to let you down. And if you return reviling for reviling, you will perpetuate a cycle of cannibalizing the body of Christ. So as is Peter's custom, he brings positive and negative, and then he invites us into further reflection in verses 9 through 12. See, pursuing blessing promises future blessing. This is what he says there in verse 9, right? But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter reminds us that we were called to bless, right? Now, this can kind of feel like a Christian pyramid scheme, right? I invest in blessing so that I might get lots more blessing back. Not to offend anybody here, part of a pyramid scheme. Yes, to offend. You, you need to be offended. Anyway, what Peter intends is a commitment to not revile in preference for our eternal reward. See, we don't spit back at others because we trust that Christ is taking care of us, that I have the fullness of, of a resurrected Jesus in heaven. I don't need to go about just pursuing my own agenda all the time, do I? And what he does is he grounds this by quoting Psalm 34. You see that big quotation there in verses 10 through 12. And sometimes we just kind of read these and we pass by them and we say, well, yeah, that makes sense. It's from the Bible, right? But we kind of need to dig in a little bit here with this quote because I think Peter has something, another layer underneath it. When we turn to Psalm 34, when we read the the subscription that's at the top of the heading of the psalm, uh, this David tells us, or the the person who's recording the psalms tells us that David wrote this psalm when he was fleeing from Saul and went to Gath to the household of Abimelech, or Achish, Achish, uh, which we find in 1 Samuel 21. See, here's the context. In 1 Samuel 20, uh, Saul throws another spear at David. Like, this is a recurring theme. It keeps happening. Saul is trying to kill David. And so David is now on the outs. He is fleeing from his home country. And he comes out then to this, uh, this foreign land, Gath, in, in 1 Samuel 21. And when he got there, David has a choice, right? He's before this foreign king. He's known to have military prowess. 
And so when he comes into this kingdom's uh, court, Achish is saying, why did you let this guy into the court, right? You, don't, you do know who this is. Like Saul's killed his thousands. David's killed his ten thousands. Why is this guy here? And David overhears this. And what he starts doing is he starts drawing on the post of the door and drooling all over his beard. Classic, right? He's proving, feigning madness so that Ashish will have mercy on him and see that he's truly out of his mind and let him go and not kill him. But essentially, David had a choice. When he stepped into the courts of Achish, he had two choices. He could remain faithful to Saul, but he was still an enemy to this foreign king, Achish. Or he could reject God's anointed Saul, and he could become a friend to Achish. He chooses to feign madness. See, David chooses, rather than to speak against the one that God had anointed, rather than to violate what he's, what he's called to, he chose rather to just feign madness. Look at what it says then. In verse 10, he talks about he keeps his tongue from evil. In verse 11, he seeks peace and pursues it. It has a very different meaning when we look at it through that lens. Peter wants us to think of of David's refusal to speak ill of Saul. Even though Saul had mistreated David, Peter wants to see that he chose to honor him. And so what happens then in verses 13 through 17, Peter's going to change this focus a little bit from, from kind of an internal discussion about how we become blessed in the house of God to how do we bless those who don't honor us, who don't hold the same values as us? How do we bless those that, going back to chapter 2, have, have rejected the stumbling stone Christ? Look at verse 13 with me. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should, you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Peter starts off and he says, don't be afraid of the unrighteous. Right? He kind of gives this maxim. He's saying like, who's really going to oppose you if you are being a blessing? Who really is there that's going to oppose you if you're doing what's good? And yet verse 14 kind of considers the possibility. It's true. When we treat others well, we most of the time will be treated well in return. However, there are exceptions, aren't there? And it goes, as the world becomes increasingly deceived, the categories of right and wrong become increasingly confused. And even when we're doing what we think is good and right and kind, it might be rejected as hate and rejection. See, Peter tells us in verse 14, not to be afraid or to be troubled. And this kind of fits a running theme that Peter's had about proper fear. We're supposed to fear the Lord. Going back to chapter 1, verse 17, we recognize that God himself is the judge. Therefore, we live in a righteous fearfulness of God. And we're taught here specifically in 1 Peter not to fear those in authority over us, but rather to have properly placed fear in God. And so he's going to unpack that yet again. So what in verse 
verse 15 through 17, he says to set apart Christ as Lord. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, Peter gives us a string of instructions to help us mitigate our fearfulness of those who oppose us, right? And he starts it off, set apart Christ as Lord. Be prepared to speak uh, with gentleness and respect, with the good conscience. And he's going to lead us by the nose through these kind of set of, of directives that will kind of help us to not be fearful in the wrong ways. And the first thing he says is to set apart Christ as Lord. See, the recognition from Peter is, is that fear of man actually displaces the sovereign Christ from our hearts, that when we actually are afraid of what other people will think and say and respond and how they'll treat us, we actually kind of push Jesus off the throne where he belongs to sit. And so Peter is very concerned that we honor Christ, the Jesus, Christ Jesus as Lord, as holy. And first he says, be prepared to speak, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So you recognize this morning that one of the ways that we keep honoring Christ as Lord is we speak up. We speak up about the Lordship of Christ. We speak up that Jesus is resurrected, that it actually forms and shapes the way I live, that now my sins are forgiven. They're cast as far as east is from west by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And as I live in response to that, I actually trying to take on the character of Christ himself. And so we speak up to those who don't share our hope with us. And he gives us some qualifiers about how we should do that. We, we do so with gentleness and respect. It's interesting that that word respect was already used in verse 14. Have no fear of them. And so Peter's telling us not to be afraid, but to show appropriate fear. As we are living as elect exiles, we have appropriate fear. Show gentleness and respect. You ever meet somebody that just mows people down with the gospel? I mean, they've got like this gospel Uzi and they're just, right? Some of you just enjoyed me doing that motion, right? I mean, we, we just, we're so concerned. And maybe this is a good thing. We're so concerned about the glory of Christ that sometimes we forget that this is a person who's made in the image of God that we're speaking to. And we, we need to show gentleness and kindness to them. He says that we should do so with a good conscience in verse 6. You're saying, what? where does that come from? A good conscience? If I'm sharing Jesus, right? I got the notch on my belt. What else? I don't need a clear conscience. I'm doing everything I've been asked to do. How do I have a clear conscience? So I think a clear conscience comes from speaking with gentleness and respect. And we can put our heads to the pillow at night saying, I've spoken about the lordship of Christ in such a way that honored the person and honored Jesus. Now, from here, Peter kind of gets into some of the effects of what happens when we live this way. And he talks about how this actually produces shame. He says, having a good conscience, verse 16, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, the idea here is that when you engage with gentleness and respect, and you're giving voice to the lordship of Christ and his resurrection, and you're doing so with a clear conscience, what it actually does when people reject the story of the gospel, it accumulates judgment for them. 
It actually adds up that someday when they stand before a righteous and holy God and God kind of gives an account of their ledger and looks through all of the minutes and the moments of their life, he'll come to this moment where they articulated or you articulated the gospel to them and their hard hearts still rejected it, even though it came with love and kindness and gentleness. See, it produces shame. He reminds us that suffering, in verse 17, suffering for good is better than suffering for evil. Back in chapter 2, he reminded us of this again when he was talking about slaves. He said, it's better to be punished for doing what's right than to be punished for doing what's wrong. See, suffering for good, according to God's will, beats suffering because of sin every time. Have you ever watched someone cause their own difficulty. They, they live in such a way that they cause their own tensions. They, they create their own problems. You see it with our kids all the time, right? Two kids are playing, and the one kid is just getting aggressive, aggressive. He's, he's just initiating something, and then all of a sudden, the other kid just hauls off and punches him, right? Maybe, maybe that plays out way too well this morning as you're coming into church, See, sometimes Christians can so irritate the world around them, and then they cry foul whenever the world responds with impatience. We're not being gentle. We're not being respectful, but we're articulating the gospel message without love. Jesus was one who came filled with grace and truth, and we love the truth part, but sometimes we leave the grace behind. Peter reminds us this morning to bring grace and truth. See, now we come to this really fun portion of the passage. See, we've seen that we bless others to receive blessing. We bless, bless others to bring about judgment, to bring about shame. And in verses 18 through 22, uh, we have some of the most um, uh, knotted passages in the New Testament. In fact, Martin Luther wrote this. He says, uh, this is a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. And if Luther's confused by it, I feel comfortable to say I'm pretty confused by it, right? But we finally kind of turn to these verses in 18 through 22 that Jesus suffered to overcome suffering. So listen to this passage with me. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was still being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So the first thing we see, and we see this in verses 18, and 20, 18 to 20, and then again in verse 22, is that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit to preach to disobedient spirits. You're saying, what on earth does this passage mean? Well, I think there's three options, and Tom Schreiner has kind of highlighted these three options. Option number one is that Jesus, by the Spirit, preached through Noah that in the Spirit, 
when Noah was there in the days of Genesis chapter 6, and uh, the uh, sons of God, the angels, were sleeping with the daughters of men, and men were becoming more and more violent so that God had to bring judgment, and he speaks to Noah, and Noah builds this ark, that God was actually in the Spirit preaching through Noah. Jesus was preaching that way. The problem with this, this is the view held by Augustine and others, the problem with this is it doesn't match out well with our, with our language of our passage. In verse 18, after being, Jesus, after, after being raised, Jesus went through time? Where does he go? It doesn't make sense with the actual wording of the passage. I suppose it's possible, but it would be unique in the New Testament for Jesus to be the Scott Bakula quantum leap time-traveling guy, Right? Second option is that in the interval between his death and resurrection, Jesus went and preached to the men of Noah's day, and he's offering them a chance to repent. Um, And the question we have here is, since when do the dead ever have a chance at repentance? We've never seen this anywhere else in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. Uh, So if Jesus is going to preach to those who were alive in Noah's day, but are now kind of in that holding tank, the abode of the dead, uh, where else do we see any doctrine like that reflected in the Scripture? And, And further, why would Peter highlight that when he's trying to push present faithfulness in this letter in 1 Peter 2, or in 1 Peter? It doesn't make any sense to the, the overall structure of his writing. And finally, a third critique of this is when Jesus speaks of his death on the cross, he speaks as if he's going into the Father's presence. He says, into, my hand, into your hands I commit my spirit. He speaks to the thief on the cross, and he says, uh, today you will be with me in paradise, right? So option number three is this, and I think this is the best available option, that Jesus proclaimed his power over the spiritual authorities being held in prison, that Jesus is actually proclaiming power over spirits that are being held captive. And we know that from back in Genesis 6 that these angelic creatures were doing what was wrong and God was judging them. And so I think verse 22 gives us a really important key to understanding what Peter's meaning is here. And we already read this at the beginning of the service. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. See, Peter highlights that it is these angels, these authorities and powers who are now brought into subjection to him. See, remember in Noah's day, these rebellious spirits were judged by God. It kind of brought about the flood. What Peter is speaking about is about Jesus' reign over spiritual authorities in the spiritual realm. Apparently, after his resurrection, Jesus went and preached to these spirits from Noah's day. He preached to them of his rule and authority. He preached to those who thought themselves gods and showed them that he was truly raised and truly reigning. And I imagine that the message sounded a lot like Matthew 28, verse 19. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. You're subject to me. Colossians tells us that he led captivity captive, that he had reign over spirits and authorities. Say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus drive out demons when he was on earth? How does he now have rule and reign over spirits in a new way that he didn't have it before? It's a very good question. I'm so glad you asked. 
See, Jesus drove out spirits by the Father's authority. And now, as all authority has been granted to him, he has direct control, not by proxy any longer. See, what verses 18 through 21 tell us is something very similar. Jesus was raised to bring us to God. That's what verse 18 says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He returns to the same idea in verse 21. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, just as Jesus was raised to preach to spirits in prison, he was also raised to bring us to himself. And through faith, we appeal to his saving work in baptism. We might stop and ask, wait a minute, this verse tells us that baptism saves us. So does baptism save us? And this gets confusing because when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, he says that we should repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. It might seem to us that baptism is this ritual that's required by us to be performed so that we can be in right standing with God. But it's there that we recognize in Ephesians chapter 2, right? Our salvation comes by faith through grace and this not of yourselves. In fact, God spoke through the minor prophets, through Isaiah and others, to talk about how he hated the ritual living of Israelites. The ritual of baptism, it exists as an appeal, as Peter says. It represents the heart of faith that existed even before your baptism ever took place. Right? That's the order, correct? Like you actually came to faith in Jesus Christ so that you would be publicly proclaiming your faith in baptism. In fact, you know, we are really strong on baptism here. We want to see people who trust in Christ actually be baptized. And if you're interested in baptism, we have a, a service coming up at the Philbrands in, in July, I believe. But one thing baptism doesn't do is save us. Your appeal to God for a clear conscience in Christ through the resurrection of Christ is what saves us. And we're kind of down in the nitty-gritty, right? We're kind of, uh, kind of pulling all the fine hairs out of this passage, and we're, we're kind of pulling it together, as it were. But uh, if we're kind of recap all of this, Peter's telling us that there is an appropriate way of living when we recognize that Jesus has subjected the spiritual powers to himself. Because Jesus is Lord, we look for, to him for blessing. Because Jesus is Lord, we don't fear those who persecute us. See, our posture of blessing is in accordance with Jesus' lordship. Look at verse 18. Christ also suffered. Realize that Jesus suffered too. That the God of heaven took on our flesh took on our weakness, became like us, and suffered, probably more so than any of us have ever suffered. Christ is a sufferer alongside us. But it's not just that it ends there, that Jesus wasn't just uh, the God that we can turn to in our suffering. Jesus was one who was victorious in his suffering. In fact, that's what Peter kind of turns to in verse 22. He tells us that he now has authority over all powers and all angels and all everything spiritual in the spiritual realm. 
See, Jesus was victorious. On the far side of Jesus' crucifixion, there's a life of victory. That Jesus was raised by the Spirit. He was victorious all over all of these spiritual authorities such that he led captivity captive, that he actually showed himself to be fully in power over anyone who would claim any kind of authority. And now Jesus sits enthroned without rival, having defeated death and hell. He now rules and reigns until all the earth will recognize his rule and authority. Isn't that what happens in Philippians 2? He's been given the name above every name, that at that name every knee should bow and every tongue confess. See, someday all the earth will recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. But right now, Jesus has full reign over every spiritual being. You say, that's great. What on earth does that mean for me? What does it mean for me as I pay my mortgage payment? as I face job loss, as I struggle to discipline and instruct my kids? How does that have any bearing on my my life right here, right now? See, Jesus' victory has meaning for us. See, Peter's kind of slowly turning our heads so that we might see the resurrected Christ, the, the exalted Jesus Christ. He's taking our eyes off of our circumstances, off of our difficulty, right here, right now, and he's setting it fully on his throne in heaven. Just as Christ was raised, Christian, you will be too. See, just as Christ is victorious, Christian, you also will live and reign with him forever. See, through the resurrection of Jesus, we someday will leave this life of suffering and be in God's presence. Do you trust in that? You know, beyond the theology exam, you know, when, hey, do you believe that Jesus now reigns in heaven? Check. Yes, I do. Do you believe that someday you'll be with God in heaven? Yes, I do. Tomorrow morning when you wake up at 5.30 or 6 or whatever time you get up, is that the first thought that runs through your mind? Jesus reigns and rules over everything. Someone pokes you in the middle of the night. Do you sit up and just speak about resurrection? Speak about the eternal hope that we have in Christ? See, right now, sometimes these things just, they just seem theoretical. They seem far off from us. But I would submit to you that right now is more pertinent time than ever to grab hold of the lordship of Jesus Christ, for us to bank upon this idea that Jesus rules and reigns over everything, that there's nothing happened that he doesn't sovereignly oversee. See, when we get hold of that idea, we are fully equipped to bring blessing. Follow that? When we get hold of the idea that Jesus is exalted, that he rules and reigns over everything, that's when you and I are in a position to bring blessing. You know, Jesus makes this really weird statement in Matthew chapter 6. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 7. He tells us the golden rule, right? Your parents tell you this all the time, right? You should treat others as you want to be treated. And we kind of always put limitations to that, right? We always said, well, within some way, like, I don't have to give them the shirt off my back, but I might have to kind of go the extra mile to help them out. 
But if you read the passage directly before that where Jesus is speaking, he talks about prayer. And he says, which of you, if your child asks for a a loaf of bread, will give him a scorpion? See, the understanding that Jesus has is because we have a good father who blesses us with good things, we can be self-giving to the nth degree. That we can give ourselves away because our God rules and reigns in heaven over everything, and you and I can be fully expending of our resources. That we can give away our time and our energy and our finances. We can give those things away in full trust and faith in Jesus Christ. See, because Jesus has subjected the ruling authorities, we can give ourselves away freely. Jesus sits enthroned right now, and you can afford to go the extra mile in service to another. What are we afraid that we might lose? Our finances? The sovereign God of the universe who gave us his own son, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Are we afraid that we might lose our time? The sovereign God of the universe has given us eternity in Christ. Are we afraid that we would lose our energy? The sovereign God of the universe gives us his spirit to empower us. And what do we have to lose when our future is guaranteed by a risen Christ? See, the life of the Christian should take on a mentality of blessing rather than a mindset of conservation. You ever feel like you're guilty of that? You look at the things that you've amassed and you want to just collect them. You want to hold on to them. You want to cling to them. See, the resurrected life moves us from time consciousness to an eternal mindset. The resurrection of Jesus moves us from independence to interdependence. It moves us from self-preservation to self-giving. I remember I was uh, having a meeting with someone one time, husband and wife, and Jody and I were there. We were both talking. And the wife speaks up on behalf of the husband. And she, she says, I feel like he needs friends. And in just kind of this really bold, rare moment, she said, would you be a friend? And I don't know what was going on in my head at that point in time. But I looked back and I said, yeah, I'll be a friend if he's going to be a friend to me. Unrealizing of the selfish, short-sighted view that I had. Someone who's in a moment of need and weakness, and I, I interacted with them Uh, with a kind of a reciprocity expectation, an idea that they would return good for good. I didn't have a resurrected mindset where I would give myself. See, Christian, right now, Jesus rules and reigns over every spirit. He's actively bringing all things in subjection to himself. So we also can be subject to him. And because he's good, we can trust that he'll provide everything we need. Amen. I want to pray that God makes us a people that learn how to live in this proper subjection. Not that we're in subjection to any whim of someone else around us, but because of the lordship of Christ and our subjection to Christ, we live underneath all those authorities that he's placed over us.
We live underneath the, the commands to, even as Peter says here, to, to give a declaration of the hope that we have within us. To do so with gentleness and respect. To, um, as verse 8 says, to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind with one another. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray this in your name. Prayed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has subjected all things to himself as he's been resurrected from the dead. And Lord, in light of that, we pray that you would make us subject. And we would look for blessing in the right places, that we would come to you. I pray, Lord, as we interact with one another, that we would be marked by a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and humble mind toward one another, that we would push away from returning evil for evil, but instead respond in goodness and in wholeness to others. And when those outside of the body of Christ or those who are not Christian or do do not believe in you, they press on us, I pray that we would seek to bless them. And we would give an adequate articulation of our hope in you, that we would do that with gentleness and respect, with a clear conscience. Above all these things, Father, we pray that you would be honored in us as we seek to live out your will and your desire. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.